All right, so our story today begins with a special couple. You guys know who they are, Joseph and Mary. And so Joseph and Mary, in this part of Matthew's gospel, are betrothed to be married. That simply means that they were pledged to be married. They're in the betrothal period. Now, in those days and in that culture, marriages were often prearranged. And so if a father had a little boy and his friend had a little girl, and let's say they're standing outside and they're watching their kids uh, play outside together, one dad may look at the other dad and say, are you thinking what I'm thinking? And the other dad might say, yeah, I mean, this could work. And if they both concurred, they could enter into a formal agreement that when their kids were of age, they would be married. Now, as the years passed and the time drew near, uh, usually it was about one year prior to the wedding ceremony where now these adult kids would enter into what's called the betrothal period. All this involved a legal contract between the two families where the young man would pay a dowry to his future father-in-law. And so that meant that, you know, the thinking behind that was this, that the father-in-law, right, is losing his daughter, who's a contributing member of his family, and so since she's leaving his household and is no longer a contributing member of his family, it's only right that he, the father-in-law, should be compensated for that loss. And so a dowry was paid to him either with money or with work. Now, some of you dads are here. You still have daughters at home. And you're thinking right now, I kind of like that idea. Man. This young guy who's dating my daughter, he can start right now. He can start mowing my lawn, washing my car, <laughs> trimming my hedges, and then if he asks for her hand in marriage, I want that cold, hard cash right here, right? Now, now, even though it worked in Bible times, I don't think it would fly in our culture today, right? But during the betrothal period, I taught you this before, the groom, what would he do during that year? He would go and he would add a section to his father's house and then after the year you guys know this already when we talked about the rapture he would go usually at an unannounced time and he would take his bride back to his father's house they would have a seven-day celebration a wedding feast and they would consummate the marriage and um, praise the Lord their husband and wife so our story begins today with Joseph and Mary in their betrothal period all right, so right now, if you're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, can you say amen so I know you're with me here? All right, so it says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, check this out, before they came together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And so even though a betrothed couple were bound together legally before the marriage ceremony. Listen, they were forbidden to be bound together sexually until after the wedding ceremony. In other words, they saved sex for marriage, which by the way, ladies and gentlemen, has always been God's command. I don't care if you're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament. The prescriptive commandments in the word of God, they're clear. Sexual activity is to be enjoyed exclusively by a man and a woman who have made vows before God and man, right? They have entered into the covenant of marriage. The problem that we have is that people would rather live by their feelings rather than by what is right. And that's indicative of a lack of character. Ladies, if you're here today and you're single, I hope you would agree that strong character should be one of the top qualities that you're looking for in a potential spouse. And that means that if the guy that you're dating is pushing you to have sex with him, listen, no matter how handsome he may be, no matter how muscular or strong he may be, 
He's proven that his character is weak, therefore you should run. And guys, that goes for you as well. You too should make sure that the lady that you are dating has strong character, not just regarding sexuality, but in all areas of life. But see, the couples in our day, in our age, they often push back, right? They say, well, shouldn't we live together before we get married to see if we're compatible? And the answer is simple. Living together before marriage is a bad idea. It's a bad idea spiritually, but it's also a bad idea practically speaking as well. Did you guys know that the divorce rate among couples who live together before marriage is substantially higher than the divorce rate among those who don't live together before marriage? What does that mean? That means that cohabitating before you say I do will actually weaken your future marriage. The research proves it. But some people say, well, my girlfriend and I are living together, but we're not having sex, so we're okay, right? And my question would be this, why in the world would you put yourself in that situation? Didn't the Lord Jesus teach us to pray, quote, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? I mean, living together while trying to abstain from sex is like going to Kilwins while trying to abstain from ice cream. It doesn't work. <laughs> but somebody says, you know, I'm trying to lose weight, and that's why I stop at Killwins every day after work. I don't eat the ice cream, I just go in there and look at it. Well, what do you think that's gonna lead to? It's gonna lead to the same thing that living together leads to. So here's an idea, if you're listening, say amen. Why don't we all just obey the Lord? Why don't we just do what's right? Who cares what the culture's doing? Who cares what our friends think? All that matters is what God thinks. He's the one we gotta stand before someday. It's God. And by the way, he knows a lot more than we do. He's infinite, he's eternal, he's all-knowing. He's a lot smarter than we are. He's got it all figured out. There's a reason why he says, save sex for marriage. And we ought to do what he says. And I just wanna, I wanna share this too before I go on, man, God is also omnibenevolent. What does that mean? He's all loving. And so he would much rather bless you than discipline you. So just do what he says and let the chips fall. Now, and by the way, some of you are thinking right now, we can't afford it financially. God will provide. You just sing about it. Jehovah Jireh, right? Whatever the rest of the song, whatever the rest of the lyric said. Meet my needs, he'll meet your need. You honor him, he'll honor you. Trust him. All right, so the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Wow, she was found to be with child. I wonder how Joseph took that news. I mean, did she tell him? Or did he just notice that she's starting to show? We don't know, the Bible doesn't say. But if Mary told him, maybe the conversation went something like this. She's like, Joseph, honey, we need to talk. Okay, what's up? This is really hard for me to say. It's okay, it's me, just spit it out. I'm pregnant. What? I'm with child, but it's not what you think. How do you want me to think? <laughs> Joseph, I've never been with a man. Well, that's usually how these things happen, Mary, right? <laughs> Joseph, it was the Holy Spirit. Silence. Can you imagine what this guy is feeling right now? I mean, can you imagine the shock? Ladies and gentlemen, these are real people this is one of the reasons I recommend The Chosen, even though we may not agree with everything that's ever said, right? This is why, because The Chosen does an amazing job showing us these are real people like you and I. They have real emotions. They go through real struggles like you and I, right? And so what's going on in, the, in Joseph's heart? Man, he's experiencing some negative emotions. He's confused. He is crushed. 
He doesn't know how in the world the woman that he loves has been unfaithful to him. He wants to know what in the world is going on. He's probably thinking, where is he? I'm going to hurt him, right? He's shocked. Why? Because he's never heard about a virgin birth. Think about this for a minute. Joseph never heard the Christmas story. Joseph was never given a Christmas card. You know, a card with him and Mary and the baby Jesus and a stable and animals posing, right? He's never been given a card like that. He's never saying silent night, holy night, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. All this is new to him. All he knows is the woman that he loves has been unfaithful to him. He's shocked. He's crushed. What does he do? Let's find out in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, I love that, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so as I already told you, since the betrothal period was legally binding, Joseph knew I have to get a divorce. But he decided to do it quietly, why? Because he doesn't want Mary, whom he loves, to be exposed to a public scandal. So he does it quietly. Or at least he's thinking about doing it quietly. And he goes to bed that night. Now again, put yourself in Joseph's sandals. I, I bet you it took a long time for him to go to sleep that night. I bet you he's tossing and turning. I mean, his whole world has just come crashing down. He doesn't know what to think. And he's trying to go to sleep. And all of a sudden he nods off. And that's when something amazing happens. Look at verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of who? You tell me. David. David. Let's just stop right there for a minute. You know that there's four gospels, and so we have four accounts of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And all of, all of them are factual. They're eyewitnesses, or at least um, Mark got it from, we think, Peter. So Peter was an eyewitness. Matthew was an eyewitness. Peter was an eyewitness. Luke interviewed carefully eyewitnesses before he wrote his gospel, and John was an eyewitness. Okay, but they tell it from different angles. And why in the world does Matthew decide, I've got to make sure that I record what the angel exactly said to Joseph, that he Joseph was the son of David. I told you this last week because Matthew was writing primarily to the who? To the Jews. And the Jews were very, very, very concerned that this Jesus of Nazareth had a rightful claim to the Davidic throne, the, the, um, da the Davidic covenant, right? The throne of David, which God said is gonna last forever. And so Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Shock, shocker. Verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name. Go ahead and shout it out. Jesus. For he, Yeshua, will save his people from their sins. And so when Joseph woke up, man, everything changed again. Before he's happy, He's content, he's about to get married to the woman of his dreams, and then he gets the shocking news, his whole world comes crashing in, and then now, you know, at, from a low point in the dream, he gets this information from an angel, and now he wakes up, and he's happy again. Talk about a roller coaster of emotions, right? He's happy again, he's so excited, why? Because Mary was telling the truth. And not only that, he's so relieved. Praise God, she hasn't been unfaithful to me. He's probably a little guilty. Man, why didn't I believe her? She's so godly. I should have, he's probably kicking himself. Now, as he processes all this, it probably slowly starts to dawn on him, right? This is how truth sometimes is. It takes us a little while to really understand it. So it's dawning on him, right, the next morning. So Mary has been chosen by Almighty God to be the mother of our long-awaited Messiah. And this Messiah is not gonna come from my seed. No, 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 it's already a done deal. The angel was very clear. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we gotta put the brakes on right here. 
we got to put the brakes on right here because we're talking about something very, very important. Did you know, or in case you didn't know, the virgin birth of Christ is an essential teaching of our faith? Here's one of those times where I'll say it again. Don't check your brain at the door. Make sure you come to church. Make sure you want to learn. Part of being a disciple is a learner. And you need to know as a learner that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is an essential of the faith. Christians may disagree about secondary doctrines, right? Like the mode of baptism. Should we pour the water on their head or should we dunk them, right? Or the rapture, when is it going to take place? Is it pre-trib or is it mid-trib? Or whether or not the sign gifts are for today, like tongues and healing, right? Um, is, are we cessationists? Did that already pass off? Or are we continuationists that we believe all the gifts are for today? Or the age of the earth? Is it an old earth or is it a new earth? I could go on and on and on. Now, please hear me. All these topics are very important and we should know exactly what we believe about these things. But compared to the essentials of the faith, they're secondary. They're secondary. And I just wanted, this is not in my notes, but I, I just feel compelled to say this. Here at Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie, please, please, please do not adopt an attitude that if somebody disagrees with you about a secondary doctrine, that you question their salvation. Or you say, I don't know if that guy's really saved. Or, you know, that person is a heretic. No. Listen, you're a Pharisee. That's the problem. Your attitude is wrong. These are secondary issues that true evangelical born-again Christians disagree on sometimes. Again, they're important. We take our stand, what we believe the Bible says, but they're secondary. So what are the essentials of the Christian faith? I've taught this to you before, but we always get visitors, so I'm gonna say it again. The essentials revolve around two things, two studies, Christology and soteriology. Christology, the study of Christ. Soteriology, the study of salvation. The two major questions regarding the essentials of the faith. Question number one, who is Jesus Christ? Question number two, how can I be saved? Nothing, nothing, nothing is more important than that. If, you, if your answers to those two questions are right, and as a repentant sinner, <clears throat> you put your personal trust in the true Jesus. Good news, everybody, you get eternity right. But if you're here and your answers to those two questions are wrong and you don't put your trust in the true Jesus, you get all eternity wrong. That's why these are essential. So who is Jesus Christ? Well, I wanna be crystal clear. First and foremost, he was and is God in flesh. Now listen, every so-called pseudo-Christian cult disagrees with that line number one. Every major world religion outside of Christianity disagrees with line number, number one. You got an example of pseudo-Christian cults, the people that used to knock on your door on Saturday, now they set up on the corner somewhere. And they'll say, no, he's not God in the flesh. He was created. He's Michael the archangel. Eh, wrong answer. That's heresy. That's heresy. Or you have Islam. Islam does not believe that Jesus wasn't his God in the flesh. They reject that. They say that Allah does not have a son. They do not believe that Jesus died on a cross. They do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's heresy. No, true Christians around the world, they believe that Jesus Christ, 100% God, 100% man, that's the incarnation. That's why we celebrate Christmas he wasn't is God in the flesh. Now, if your Jesus is not God in the flesh, you put your faith in a wrong Jesus who can't save you. You see why this is essential? All eternity hangs in the balance. Not just that, he was born of the Virgin Mary. Not just that, he lived a sinless life. Why is that important? Because if he didn't live a sinless life, then when he went to the cross, he's not the spotless Lamb of God, therefore he's not qualified to die in our place, which leads you to the next point. He died a substitutionary death, a vicarious death. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus wasn't just up there being an example of how to be a martyr. No, no, he died for you. 
because you and I deserve death. He died in our place vicariously, substitutionary, substitutionary death. But then he rose from the dead. Praise the Lord. If that didn't happen, then it's all wrong. But he rose from the dead. He got up, and I should have put bodily. He didn't, as the cults will say, spiritually rise from the dead. No, he got up in the body that was crucified, and he walked out resurrected from the dead. And not just that, he will return to reign. I'm talking about the personal, literal, second coming of Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Listen, that particular, in that context, that's not talking about you know, the nuances or the, the details. I went through all the nuances and details in a five-week, and I couldn't believe I looked at my messages, over 50 minutes for all five of those messages, but a five-week end-time study, we got into the details, but I'm not talking about that there. What I'm talking about here is that all true Christians agree that Jesus Christ will come back literally and personally to this earth, and he's gonna reign, right? Praise God for that. We believe in that. And so any so-called Christ who's not that is a false Christ, and he cannot save. Now, regarding soteriology, it can be summed up in one beautiful statement. Jesus Christ will justify, can you guys say justify? justify. Any repentant sinner. How many times have you heard this? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Justification. By the way, it has nothing to do with our good works. Justification has nothing to do with baptism. No, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The angel told Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. There's Christology. Jesus, for he will save, there's soteriology, save his people from their sins. And so Joseph, don't fear. Don't fear to take Mary as your wife. That which is conceived in her is, 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 is conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. You're gonna name his, his you're gonna make, um, give him in the name. The name is Yeshua. What is that? Yahweh is salvation. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm here today to tell you that it's a great salvation. It is a wonderful salvation and it includes justification, sanctification, and glorification. So let's put the brakes on again. Let's, I want you guys to understand this, okay? What is justification? It means to be declared. Can you guys say the word declared? declared. It doesn't mean to be made righteous. Do you see that? That's a little nuanced, but so, so important. It means to be declared righteous by God. Sanctification means to be set apart to holiness by God. And glorification means to receive a glorified body from God. And so justification happens when a repentant sinner places their personal trust in the true Jesus. And at that moment in time, God declares that sinner righteous. Not because they're good. Not because they got baptized. Not because they're earning it. Not because of self-righteousness. No, God declares that person righteous. He takes their sin, and follow me, he gives that sinner his son's righteousness. And that is a legal issue. That is once and for all. Ladies and gentlemen, I was justified in May of 1984, and I stand before you today still justified. Why? Because you've been such a good person and you've been able to keep your salvation? No, no, 10,000 times no. I'm still justified because God is a God of grace and he's a promise keeper. He's not a promise breaker. And we should all be clapping right now for that. That's grace. That's amazing grace. And so know who you are. Man, get this thing settled. Know your identity in Christ. So important for you to go on to the next part, and that's sanctification. And so sanctification happens as that person continues to trust in the true Jesus. So this is progressive. This is not a momentary thing. I wish it was momentary because I struggle with my flesh just like you do. But it's not momentary. This is progressive. This is all through your life. You and I, as children of God, we're being sanctified, right? Set apart 
to holiness by God, conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and then praise the Lord, one day glorification is coming, and that's gonna happen when we're raptured. We are gonna be taken, right? And in the twinkling of an eye, at that moment, it's not progressive, at that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, what's gonna happen? Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter four, um, what's gonna happen is that we are gonna receive immortal bodies. Never die, never get sick. Now, if you die before the rapture, your body goes in the ground, your spirit absent from the body, present with the Lord, and then you go first at the rapture. You're still gonna experience the rapture. And some people call it resurrection, whatever you wanna call it. You're still gonna experience it. You are gonna come with Christ. He's putting his brakes on, First Thessalonians 4, in the clouds. You're gonna go down to your remains, ashes, bones, body, I don't know. People are always asking me, should I cremate or should I bury? Listen, if God Almighty can speak ex nihilo, a whole entire material universe, he can raise anything, ashes or bodies, okay? And so your spirit down, reunited, and you, you, if you died before the rapture, you receive a resurrected body as you go up, and then we who are alive and remain, if it happens in our lifetime, receive glorified bodies. We're not dying, we don't need to be resurrected. We're receiving glorified bodies as we go up. And so what can the true believer say about this great, great salvation? Again, I really want you guys to own this, okay? Justification, I have been saved, that's past tense. I have been saved from the what of sin? penalty what's the penalty of sin death the wages of sin is death so i have been saved why because christ's blood is sufficient i have been saved from the penalty of sin and if your your theology you believe in um theology like i believe in theology as far as romans 8 i've read it a thousand times backwards and forwards i am convinced to my very heart of hearts that once you're justified no one can change that, ladies and gentlemen. God's a promise keeper. I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Praise the Lord, I'm a child of God. Now what? I am being saved, sanctified, from the what of sin? Power of sin. Praise the Lord, as a child of God, guess what? I'm walking in life, and all of a sudden, guess what? There's a devil who hates me. And then all of a sudden, I get all this temptation junk. And it's the world, and it's the flesh, and it's the devil. But hey, how many guys know that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world? And so that, guess what, everybody? We have a, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead right here inside of us. We have that resurrection power. So we don't have to say yes. We don't have to give in to that temptation. We, not because we're so strong, give me a break. We, because of the strength of the Lord, can say, no, thank you. Go home, devil. I'm not giving in. That's sanctification. And then glorification, someday in the future, praise the Lord, we will be saved from the what of sin? Presence of sin. Only Jesus can do that. You know why? Because as Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4, 12. Let's all clap and thank the Lord for a great, great salvation. It's a great salvation. Man, it's okay to rejoice in it because this is good news. Now, as we continue in verse 22, it says this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, Matthew's always doing this. You'll see this in the weeks and months to come. All this took place, he always says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken, right? Matthew's always going back to the Old Testament. Why? because he's writing primarily to the Jews and they love the Old Testament. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet, verse 23, behold the, what's the word there? Virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. We now have more stuff that we can rejoice over. God with us. Now, Matthew quoted from Isaiah here. Matthew is in the first century AD, and he's going back in time. He's quoting a Hebrew prophet 
from the 8th century BC. He's specifically quoting from Isaiah 7:14. Here it is in the Old Testament. Therefore the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now years ago when I was in my early 20s working a secular job, there was a guy, a coworker of mine, and he said, "Mike, Mike, don't you realize that the Hebrew word for virgin, Alma, don't you know that all that means is young lady? In other words, this guy is trying to get me to believe that Mary was not a virgin when she had Jesus, that Mary was just a young woman, and she got pregnant just like anybody else, any other young woman will get pregnant. Well, there's a lot of things wrong. And by the way, I wish I knew what I know now back then. How many of you guys look back at conversations and just say, I wish I would have known this, man, right? All of us, all of us experience that. That's why we gotta keep learning, keep growing, keep reading God questions, keep studying blueletterbible.com.org, whatever it is, keep growing in your faith. But here's at least two things wrong with what he said. Number one, there's no instance in the Hebrew Bible where it can be proved that Alma was referring to a young woman who wasn't a virgin. That makes sense? So you go back, you look at all the times Alma is used, Genesis to Malachi, right? <clears throat> Never can you prove that that young woman was not a virgin. That's number one. Number two is Matthew didn't even quote from the Hebrew Bible. Matthew quoted from the Greek Bible known as the Septuagint. When you guys are having your devotions, sometimes you look in the column and you see in parentheses, capital L, X, X. What is that? That's the Septuagint. What's the Septuagint? It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In other words, second, third century BC, you have what's called the Hellenization of civilization. Hellenization simply means the influence of Greek culture, Greek language. Everybody loved everything Greek right, back in those days. And so 70 or 72, I can't remember, Hebrew scholars took the Hebrew Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and they translated it into the common language of the people into Greek. They did that in Alexandria, Egypt. And that, ladies and gentlemen, that Greek Old Testament, that became the Bible of the apostles in the first century A.D., so when Matthew was quoting Isaiah 7:14, he's not quoting the Hebrew Bible, he's quoting the Greek Bible. And the good news is that the Greek word for virgin in Isaiah 7:14 is the definitive word for a woman who has never been with a man intimately. So slam dunk everybody, Mary was a virgin. She was a virgin, and it is an essential of the faith. So why did God say through Isaiah, 700 years before it would happen, that a sign would be given to the whole house of David. That's what it says. You go back, I don't have time right now, but it's all about Ahaz, right, not wanting a sign, and God's gonna give a sign to the whole house of David that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son. Um, why would God say that it's a sign if it's just a young woman who got pregnant from her husband? You guys follow me? By the way, I didn't see that. All week long, I spend 20 hours in these messages, give or take. I didn't see it. And an elder last night in this church came to me and says, Mike, what's so special about a young woman who has sex with her husband and has a kid? How can that be a sign? How can that be a miracle to the whole house of David? She'd have to be a virgin, right? And I'm thinking, that's why you're an elder. I'm gonna use that on Sunday. But you guys see what I'm saying here? She's a virgin. Guess what? Some of you guys can't accept it. Well, listen, if you accept that God created a universe ex nihilo out of nothing by his word, why is it so hard for you to believe in the virgin birth? And if you believe in a Jesus who was not born of a virgin, you got a false Jesus who can't save you. What does that mean? That means, man, you gotta get right on this. Now, a sign would be given to the whole house of David, Isaiah 7, a virgin would bear a son and his name would be 
Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Praise the Lord, right? Now, the reason nobody called Jesus Emmanuel in the Gospels is because it wasn't a title. It was a characteristic. In other words, he promised to be with us. Now, that divine characteristic, I want to go deeper now. And I want you guys to stay with me. And I want you to learn this this morning. That divine characteristic right there, God with us, that opposes what's called deism. And it certainly does not support pantheism, but it does support what's called theism. You see, deism teaches that God is beyond the universe, but not in it. This is what some of our founding fathers in America believed. I'm not saying all of them. A lot of them were born-again Christians, okay? Don't get me wrong. But some of our founding fathers were deists. And they believed that God created everything and then went on vacation. That's what they believed. Which, by the way, you're lost if you believe in that kind of God because that is not the true God. Okay, so deism, God is beyond the universe but not in it. Pantheism teaches that God is the universe. God is the material universe. Like, you know, as if the painter painting the, the painting is that painting. No. The painter is not the painting. God is not his creation. He's the creator. He's separate from it. It drives me crazy. My wife and I love reality TV, some of it. And we watch one, one yeah, got to put that little thing in there. Um, and so we like this one show where the helicopter drops off a man or a woman in the middle of nowhere and the leaves and they got to make it 50 to 100 days, right, to win a half a million dollars. And so um, we like that kind of stuff. And so we're watching it and it drives me nuts though because the vast majority of contestants on this particular program, they're constantly thanking the universe. And I'm like, would you please Stop. I'm ready to throw popcorn at the TV set. The universe does not have a mind. The universe is mindless. It's matter. Why don't you just accept the witness of creation? If there's creation around, there's a creator. And why don't you thank him? You know what I'm saying? Why don't you just thank him? And so we're not deists. We don't believe in a God who created the world and went on vacation. We're not pantheists who believe the chair you're sitting on is God, the tree outside is God, the pet, as much as you love your pet at home, your pet is not God, and you and I are not God. So we're not pantheists. What are we? We're theists. What does that mean? That means, ladies and gentlemen, that we believe in one infinite God. By the way, we're not also polytheists like the Romans and the Greeks. We don't believe in many gods. Here's one quick reason that you won't forget. Because God is infinite and you can't have two infinites. What's infinite? All-encompassing. There can't be two infinites. So as theists, specifically monotheists, we believe in one infinite God who's the creator and sustainer of all things, who's transcendent, yet he's also imminent, right? He intervenes in his creation, and he has said to true believers, check out the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you, praise the Lord. Thank God for that. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. What does that mean? That means that God is with us. He's with us on the good days, and he's with us on the bad days. He's with us when we get good news. Hey, I'm betrothed to Mary. And he gets, he's with us when we get bad news. What in the world is going on right now? He's with us when we're confused and when we got it all figured out. He's with us when we're laughing and when we're crying. When we go to bed at night and we wake up in the morning. God is always with us. Man, he's with us when the doctor says, you're healthy. And, 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 he's with us when the doctor says, you have cancer. He's still with us. God doesn't change. God's with us, and he's for us. And he'll never leave us or forsake us if, it's a big if, we know the true Jesus as our Savior and King. It's his promise. Verse 24. And when Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, 
but knew her not, look at this, knew her not, can everybody say the word until? Now everybody knows that knew her is a euphemism, right? For a certain thing that I've been talking about a lot lately today. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So sometime after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had their wedding ceremony and like all married couples, ladies and gentlemen, they consummated their marriage. So I wanna talk to our Catholic friends right now and to Protestant evangelicals who've never been taught this. Mary was not a virgin for her whole life. Just wasn't. She mothered at least six children. We have four boys um, named in the Bible. Matthew 13, 55 through 56. Her son's name were James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. James later on got saved. He wrote the book of James. Jude later on got saved. He wrote the fiery little epistle at the end of your Bible called Jude. And Mary and Joseph had at least two daughters. Now, we don't know their names. I don't know why Matthew didn't include the women's names, just the men's names. But um, you could take that up with Matthew when you get to heaven, okay? But daughters, plural. Uh, so we know there's at least two girls. That's why I say at least six children. Now, again, these were not Jesus' cousins. These were not Joseph's kids that he brought into the marriage. No, these people were Jesus's, listen to the words, little half-siblings. They shared the same mother, but not the same father. Are you guys following with me here? So let's not go beyond the scriptures and make more of Mary than she actually was. You say, what do you mean, pastor? I'm gonna be vulnerable and go on, on the edge of the limb. I can hear it going <laughs> But I'm gonna say it anyway. Mary was not immaculately conceived in her mother's womb. Now, some people say, well, no, no, hang on a minute. I know Jesus was immaculately conceived. I'm not talking about Jesus. We know Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. I'm talking about Mary. Mary was not immaculately conceived in her mother's womb. She was not protected from the original sin. She was not born without a sin nature, and thus she never sinned. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a man-made doctrine that was added after the Bible was completed. We also, as I've already said, um, understand that Mary was not a perpetual virgin. She did not abstain from sex her whole married life. She didn't. That's a man-made doctrine that was added later in church history after the Bible was completely written. And not only that, Mary at the end of her life was not assumed, assumption of Mary, you know, in other words, bodily taken up into God's presence, escaping death, that's a man-made doctrine that's added after the Bible has been written. And we shouldn't, I'm already out on the limb, I'll say this one. We shouldn't pray to Mary either. Why? Because ladies and gentlemen, it's in black and white in God's word. There's one God and there's one mediator, go between, between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. You see that? You say, you're just being mean to Mary. No, I'm exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I'm doing. So Christ is the only mediator. He's the only go-between between us and the Father. So when we pray, here's, what we should, here's how we should pray. If you're listening, say amen. amen. We should pray to the Father in the name of the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's prayer. Somebody asked me between services, can I pray to Jesus? Of course. He's the second person of the Trinity. But the pattern you see in the, in the New Testament, pray to the Father in the name of Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit. How many of you guys are thankful for the Holy Spirit, right? Who sometimes, sometimes groans when you're having a hard time. He's groaning for you. 
He's helping you as you pray. And so should we honor Mary? Yes. Should we pray to her? No. Should we say things about her that aren't in the Bible? No. Should we pray to the saints? No. Listen, when you're praying to a saint or to Mary, think about this for a minute. If you have a thousand people, they're all praying at the same time to the saints or, the, or to Mary. And, and you're, you're trying to tell me that that saint can receive all thousand of those prayers simultaneously, make sense of them, and answer them? Aren't you giving that saint divine qualities? Only God is divine. Only God is omniscient. Only God knows everything. Only God can receive the prayers of billions of people at the same time. Okay, but, but somebody says, listen, somebody says, well, God enables them to hear prayer. No, 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 listen, if that were true, wouldn't it be in here? It's not here. It's not anywhere. So, so let, me, let me share the problem with, with everybody. The problem is that you have the Roman Catholic Church and they believe this is God's word. Praise the Lord, that's not a problem. Thank you, Jesus. And by the way, I grew up Catholic, Praise the Lord for, for the true Jesus. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, right? Praise the Lord. They believe in the Bible as God's word. Thank the Lord. But here's the, here's the problem. They elevate church tradition. What's that? That is when the Pope and the bishops agree on a doctrinal issue, and they say that when the Pope and the bishops agree on a doctrinal issue, that that doctrine, their teaching on that doctrine is infallible fallible and it is just as authoritative as the bible ladies and gentlemen that's not right that's why we stand with the reformers and i really wish the reformers would have reformed the church even more but we stand with the reformers who said in latin sola scriptura scripture alone this bible is the final authority for all matters of faith and practice it's all we need right here this is all we need it's the scriptures, okay? And so, listen, the Pope and his magisterium, that is not authoritative in my life. Now, we're so grateful that the scriptures say in Matthew 1, that Jesus, Yeshua, is gonna save his people from their sins. Why? Why, why, why? Because he, I hope you're listening, is the only one who paid the fine for our sins. I'm gonna close with this illustration. Billy Graham, and by the way, my alarm's going off, so I have three minutes. Billy Graham, you wanna know who my heroes in the faith are? I don't exalt men, right? But I definitely respect certain men, and I look to certain men who from afar have poured into my life through their books and videos. And so you wanna know who I thank God for after I get off my face in front of Jesus, right? After I worship him and get off my face, I'm gonna go shake hands of five men. Um, number one, I'm gonna shake the hand of Norman Geisler. Number two, I'm gonna shake the hand of Billy Graham. Three, Chuck Smith. Four, Chuck Swindoll. Did I say four or five? Five, five. uh-oh. <laughs> Warren Wearsby. There's so many of them. But man, praise God for the way these men have finished well and the way these men have interpreted the word of God and they rightly handled the word of truth. Now, I'll close with this illustration. Billy Graham, when he was a young man, he was speeding through a southern town. Yes, Billy Graham sped. And he got pulled over by a police officer and the police officer gave him a ticket and he had to go to court. And Billy Graham stood before the judge. The judge said, how do you plea? Guilty or not guilty? And Billy Graham said, guilty is charged, your honor. And the, the, the judge said, well, that'll be $10, $1 for every mile you went over the speed limit. So that's the old days right there. And so Billy Graham went to get out $10 and the judge said, wait a minute. And the judge pulled out his wallet and he took out $10. He paid the fine and then he took Billy Graham out for a steak dinner. True story. Billy Graham, looking back on that, he said, that's how God treats repentant sinners. I love it. So, so listen to this. Listen to this. What's the truth 
The truth is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The truth is every one of us in this room watching right now, listening later on the podcast, we all have broken God's law. One of those 10 commandments, guess what? You blew it, so did I, probably several. And James says, if you, if you mess up on one, you break one, you're guilty of all. And what's the penalty, what's the fine? It's a lot more than $10. Scripture says this, here's the fine. For the wages of sin is what? Death, death. And there's so many visitors, I gotta keep saying this, right? That's not just physical death, that's spiritual death. Your immortal soul can't die, there is no annihilation. What is spiritual death? It's being condemned by Almighty God to be separate from Him for all eternity. Right? That's spiritual death. And so that's really bad news. But the good news is this. God is not willing that any should perish. The good news, Matthew 121, Jesus came to save us from our sins. And so motivated by love, what did he do? The second person of the Trinity, he left the side of the Father and he came to this world, this fallen, sin-sick world. And he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, 100% God, 100% man. Lived a sinless life. And then he, the spotless Lamb of God, willingly went to a Roman cross on our behalf. And he hung between heaven and earth half naked, absorbing God's wrath and paying the fine. He's paying the fine for you. And by the way, that's sufficient. When you say, I gotta earn by being good and doing good works, you're saying that that's not sufficient. That's hubris, that's pride. You gotta swallow your pride and realize that you are a hopeless, helpless, Sinner that needs the salvation that only Jesus Christ can provide. He's the only one. So he died. He paid the fine. And then what happened three days later? He got up in the same body he was crucified in. He rose from the dead. He walked out of that tomb. This is a historical fact. He walked out of that tomb, victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Now, does that mean, pastor, that everybody's going to heaven? No. No. You gotta choose. You gotta choose Christ. You gotta choose to go to him in repentance and in faith, and if you will, the rest of that verse will come true for you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift you see how it's free? Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what you call mercy, that's what you call grace, and as Billy Graham said, that's how God treats repentant sinners. That's how God treats repentant sinners.